Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you're joining us today. If you've been listening lately, you've heard me lamenting about the absurdity of the FDA's hardline position about CBD ever since Congress passed the landmark 2018 Farm Bill. Despite concise language that clearly ends the prohibition of hemp and all of its natural derivatives, the FDA seems intent to strong-arm the industry into compliance with baseless rules and enforce self-administered policy that it has no legal grounds for enforcing. Needless to say, their scare tactics have had a chilling effect and created a great deal of confusion in industry circles. And that's a shame considering that the Farm Bill sought to end the confusion that has ensued ever since the DEA created a code for CBD in Schedule 1 to differentiate it from marijuana as defined in the Controlled Substances Act. Despite the looming questions, the CBD industry has been on an unprecedented upward trajectory with sales already pushing a billion dollars. While it's unlikely that the FDA threats will do much to slow that progress, the agency is mongering fear by targeting several companies with cease and desist notices and occasional raids to remove CBD products from legal points of sale for no apparent reason. And then, of course, there are ongoing exercises of futility in states where law enforcement authorities are blatantly disregarding federal law, most likely out of sheer ignorance. Take, for example, the 7,000 pounds of hemp confiscated by highway patrol officers in Idaho when it was on its way from a farm in Oregon, a legal state, to a processing facility in Colorado, yet another legal state. And here we are. The driver of the precious cargo was in the wrong place at the wrong time and unfortunately now faces felony drug trafficking charges with a mandatory minimum of five years in prison despite the fact that hemp is now legal throughout the United States. But then the FDA should know better than to threaten an industry that was fully legitimized by Congress. Having so many points of ambiguity has been a source of frustration for those of us who need to understand what's legal, particularly since it appears that most governmental agencies like the FDA are approaching regulation from a point of ignorance, if not deception. Whatever the reason, I'm eager to get to the bottom of it for once and for all. And for that, I can assure you there's no one more qualified than today's guest to help us unpack all of it. Garrett Graff specializes in all aspects of cannabis law as a senior attorney at Hoban Law Group, a firm that the National Law Journal named as a cannabis law trailblazer. He represents clients from both the marijuana and industrial hemp industries in corporate transactional matters, as well as civil and commercial litigation cases pertaining to regulatory issues, FDA compliance, and other matters such as import-export cultivation, processing, manufacturing, distribution, business establishment, and dispute resolution, just to name a few. He's also frequently working with federal, state, and local authorities on policy enforcement matters, and perhaps most noteworthy is Garrett's role representing hemp industry stakeholders against the DEA before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a case that confirmed that hemp-related provisions of the 2014 Farm Bill would preempt DEA authority and the Controlled Substances Act. 
Garrett, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad you're here. Well, no worries. It was great to join you, Snowden. I appreciate you having me. I have to tell you, I have been completely obsessed with this issue. <laughs> it, it's uh, a, a very fascinating issue. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's one that keeps us uh, busy and, and uh, is very thought-provoking um, and, and very novel. So uh, uh, always makes for uh, busy and, and uh, new projects. Yeah, well, I am so excited to be talking to you because, you know, like you said, it's fascinating. But as I mentioned in the opening, you were part of the original team that sued the DEA back in 2004 and won with the HIA as your client. And that's what made CBD from imported hemp legal anywhere in all 50 states for like 12 years. And you must have been rolling your eyes when you saw that the DEA had given CBD its own code in Schedule 1. <laughs> I mean, maybe just to clarify a few things. So uh, actually, it was my colleague, Patrick Goggin, that was uh, counsel to that case, uh, back uh, to those two cases that were to uh, uh, taken together in the early 2000s. Um, Patrick, myself, and, and Bob Hoban uh, were counsel of record in the most recent uh, petition against the DEA in 2016. Um, that said, also to clarify those cases, um, from the uh, you know, early 2000s, you know, those issues related to uh, portions of the plant being lawful. And at that time, that was the stalk, stem, fiber, and uh, non-viable seed. Uh, those were the portions of the plant exempted from marijuana. And T uh, uh, THC naturally occurs in even, uh, even in small amounts uh, or trace amounts in those parts of the plant. And, and the DEA sought to uh, regulate that THC and thus effectively eliminate even hemp seed products. So just to, uh, perhaps to clarify the uh, extent of that ruling um, with respect to, to CBD or other cannabinoids, that was not necessarily the squ uh, squarely the issue addressed in, in those past cases. Right. But for all intents and purposes, that's when the CBD industry really got off the ground because you could extract plenty of CBD from the stock stem and non-viable seeds, correct? Well, I, I think that's been, you know, while I would advocate for that, certainly, I think that's been a point of contention between various agencies and even various actors within the hemp industry. There are those that believe it's it's commercially unreasonable, and, and that, that would include the DEA, that it's commercially unreasonable to extract cannabinoids such as CBD from the stock and the stem. I do believe that it's possible, but there's a number of facts at play there. The DEA cites scientific evidence from decades ago that likely is outdated and unreliable. I think there's scientific and technological advancements. But that said, I, I also uh, uh, am not naive enough to think that there's as much uh, uh, prevalency of cannabinoids or potency of cannabinoids in the stalk and stem and, and hemp seed as there is in the hemp flower. So that, that's long been an issue of contention um, ever since uh, you know, the start of the hemp industry and, and since the early 2000s, uh, because, you know, even between, you know, say 2003 and four, when those HIV DEA cases were first won and, you know, just last year, there's still been plenty of seizures of cannabinoids by customs and other federal agencies uh, because of those points of contention. I guess what I'm getting at is that there was the beginnings of the CBD industry during that time. And it seems that for the most part, since the state regulations have taken effect, the DEA has been looking away when it comes to extracts regarding the marijuana plant, but also regarding CBD. Am I right to think that? Um, in some respects, yes and no. Uh, um, you know, I, I would agree that with the new farm bill, I think that there's uh, not the new farm bill, excuse me, but with the first farm bill, the 2014 farm bill that addressed hemp. I do think that that put the DEA on its heels with respect to uh, hemp-derived extracts. Um, and, and so we've certainly seen a, a hesitancy expressed by DEA uh, over the past several years with respect to um, hemp and hemp products that are uh, uh, derived in accordance with state law uh, that is in accordance with the Farm Bill. That's a little bit distinct from the DEA's uh, rhetoric and policy towards marijuana, where, you know, for example, you had the Cole memo, which was then replaced by the Sessions memo in early 2018, um, and where DEA is specifically to marijuana saying, hey, if it's lawful in the state with respect to marijuana, we're going to, you know, be hands off if you're complying with state law and just express uh, or exercise enforcement discretion on those issues. So, yes, I do think it is discretionary by the DEA, but it's a little bit different between marijuana and hemp. And in large part, that's because marijuana and hemp are, are in fact different. 
Right. And so what's different now that the farm bill has passed, and I'm, I know that you've looked into this pretty deeply, but what I've noticed is that the DEA no longer really has jurisdiction over CBD from hemp. And something that was very puzzling to me, and you might be able to help me unpack this a little bit, and that is that the new bill actually hands the jurisdiction of regulating CBD over to the FDA as opposed to the DEA, right? So it was puzzling to me that the FDA is taking more of a hardline stance on CBD than the DEA ever did. It seems like the DEA was for the most part just sort of letting the industry roll. And the FDA has sent out this memorandum, which I've talked about ad nauseum on this show lately. It's an issue that is just so perplexing to so many people. But since that memo came out, there's a lot of confusion about what these CBD companies that have had a long time to sort of establish themselves and get the industry rolling. Now they're being told that there are no... Uh, CBD products that are legal for interstate commerce or for, you know, um, exporting out of state. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think to to unpack that, we actually need, need to take some steps back, um, you know, before this new farm bill. I know that that's the exciting, you know, point in time now, but I think it's important that we understand uh, from where we came. You know, you had made some comments about, uh, um you know, the 2003 and four cases, and, and that's kind of certainly the, the start of the, the current era of hemp as we know it. Um, but then fast forward to 2014, uh, where all parts of the plant, uh, not just the stock and the stem, were made lawful under U.S. law, so long as that uh, hemp plant is grown domestically. And, you know, I think when you, you and I have, have discussed this before, but uh, uh, I think you made reference to, you know, this idea of the marijuana extract final rule by DEA and that, you know, is CBD legal or illegal uh, over the past few years? And, and the reality is the 2014 Farm Bill made this legal. It just was not particularly clear. Uh, you know, so when the 2014 Farm Bill was established, um, it did not assign a federal authority to oversee the cultivation and other hemp-related activities. Um, it instead deferred entirely to states. So it kind of left this hole of, is this a DEA matter? Is this a USDA matter? Is this an FDA matter? Um, but that's also understandable. That was a crop uh, at that time, you know, five years ago, that, the, that Congress had not dealt with in decades. And so I don't think it would necessarily be fair for us to expect Congress to immediately understand the, the hemp crop and how best to regulate it. Um, and so I think that there's been a natural evolution since then. But over the course of the past five years under the old farm bill, you know, it did legalize industrial hemp domestically. It provided states the, the ability to implement a state program. But more so, you know, you, you started talking about DEA exercising discretion and not taking such a hard line. That's because Congress wouldn't let them. You know, for the past uh, four years since 2015, Congress has specifically prohibited DEA and other federal agencies from using funds provided by Congress in the budget uh, against the 2014 Farm Bill. And they even specifically detailed, and when I say they, I mean Congress, Congress specifically detailed that that would include for any attempt to interfere with the transport, processing, sale, and use of Farm Bill hemp across state lines. Well, what do those adjectives and phrases mean? Well, if I'm going to process and sell hemp, guess what? One of those derivatives are cannabinoids. Uh, you're then selling hemp. So there's a commercial activity in, in selling processed derivatives such as cannabinoids and talking about crossing of state lines, interstate commerce. So I guess the point is, is you know, dating back to the 2014 Farm Bill is really, you know, when a lot of this regulation first started going. And I would note that, you know, that, that was a point in time in which um, Congress intended to make all of this lawful. They, uh, again, they just did not do so in a particularly uh, clear way. Uh, but then fast forwarding, you then have this you know, marijuana extract final rule, DEA again trying to say uh, that it is illegal um, to use quote unquote marijuana extract and uh, whether it was unknowing or intentional, uh, DEA defined marijuana extract to be any extract containing one or more cannabinoids from the genus cannabis. Well, you and I both know, you know, cannabinoids are not per se illegal, and the genus cannabis itself is not per se illegal, only marijuana is, as defined under federal law. 
And so this overly broad definition, again, thrust more uncertainty or confusion as to, well, are hemp-derived extracts lawful or, or unlawful? And that's what prompted myself and, and my colleagues to represent hemp industry stakeholders um, again against the DEA uh, before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But I, I bring this issue up because there's two important pieces that come, or three important pieces that come from that court case that started in uh, early 2017 and concluded in April of 2018. During that case, DEA admitted several things. One, that cannabinoids per se are not controlled substances. So uh, outside of THC, which is separately scheduled, CBN and CBD and, and all these other specific cannabinoids are not expressly scheduled themselves. Secondly, the, the DEA acknowledged that where the farm bill applies, they have no authority. So that's why you're seeing DEA not take a hardline stance because they, they statutorily could not do so. But then on top of the DEA's own concessions, which by the way are sworn testimony um, you know, by the DEA, you have 29 bipartisan members of Congress that came forth in January 2018, you know, about a year ago. And those members of Congress came together, which keep in mind, how often do we see you know, a, a dysfunction in DC? All the time. So the fact that you have a bipartisan coalition of uh, members of Congress, that's a powerful thing. They advised the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the second highest court in the land, that the DEA got this all wrong and that hemp was made lawful by the, by the 2014 Farm Bill, including product development and cannabinoid products. Uh, so, you know, they made further clear what their intent was in 2014. And then lastly, the court confirmed all this. The court said, in its order, they said that the farm bill, the 2014 farm bill, preempts the CSA and the DEA's authority. So again, now the, there's a court order saying that the DEA has no jurisdiction over the farm bill materials. All that to say, all those are great resources, but that then sets the landscape for what happened in 2018 as the new farm bill, the new 2018 farm bill was eventually put into place. There was a recognition and acknowledgement among members of Congress, amongst the industry and many others that, hey, the 2014 farm bill made it legal, but it was not particularly clear. How do we clarify things? And so in trying to level the playing field and, and make clear uh, or to clarify and affirm the, the lawfulness of hemp, that's what lays the foundation for the 2018 farm bill. And so you're right in the sense then in the 2018 farm bill that the definition of hemp is expanded to specifically reference cannabinoids, extracts, and derivatives with the intent that Congress is contemplating that not only is raw hemp material lawful, but so too are its derivatives, such as cannabinoids like CBD. Um, so that is made clear and that, you know, is to the exclusion of the DEA. And your point was that you know the, the FDA is tasked with dealing with that, but actually before the FDA, what the Farm Bill actually does is it tasks the USDA with regulating hemp because hemp in its raw form is an agricultural commodity. The Farm Bill does not actually go so far to say, hey, FDA, you must do this. The Farm Bill actually says, you know, hey, the, the Federal Food and Dr uh, Drug and Cosmetic Act, the FDNC, which is what underpins FDA's authority, is not to be affected by this farm bill. So basically they're punting on the FDA issue. Congress punted and preserved the issue for FDA to figure this out. So now to the crux of that question, I know it's been a long-winded kind of summary here, but uh, uh, to the crux of your question, why is the FDA taking a hardline stance? Because their authority and DEA's authority are entirely mutually distinct. DEA is concerned about whether something is a controlled substance or not. In this case, the new farm bill further clarifies and affirms, no, raw hemp is not a controlled substance, nor are derivatives such as cannabinoids controlled substances. So that's in large part why you're seeing DEA exercise caution in, in where it pokes its nose. Conversely, the FDA, regardless of what the material is, hemp, you know, citrus, uh, calcium, vitamin C, the FDA is tasked with determining whether that material is appropriate for inclusion in finished consumer goods and products, especially those intended for ingestion. And so it's then a taking that material, in this case hemp or hemp-derived cannabinoids, and fitting it into the FDA's existing regulations, if at all, and seeing how those two things commingle. And so the FDA issued that statement, um, you know, that they are concerned that CBD uh, specifically uh, is not appropriate or permissible to put into products. 
But one, a common misnomer here is that this is the FDA's stance as of December 2018. The misnomer is that the FDA has had that stance for four or five years now. That is nothing new. Uh, in fact, that, that, you know, the FDA has said that for quite some time. But where I think the proof is in the pudding is the fact that the FDA, in exercising its enforcement authority over the past five years, they focus on those who are making disease claims, which are entirely impermissible anyways, uh, rather than this ingredient issue. I am actually encouraged by the FDA's stance from December uh, after the Farm Bill passed, because for the first time, instead of sticking their heads in the sand and just throwing their hands up in the air, the FDA is acknowledging pathways forward and saying, hey, we think that there are pathways forward for hemp-derived ingredients to be put into products. Now, we need to make sure as an industry that we closely monitor that and that it does not go entirely the way of pharma, but it, it's a concept that we call the swim lanes and making sure that we create mutually distinct and independent swim lanes for supplements, for pharmaceutical products, and eventually for over-the-counter marijuana products separately. Okay, you've given me a lot to think about here. A couple of things that I just wanted to clarify that, you know, from a lot of people that I speak with, there are a couple points of confusion. And one is the FDA's notice was not quite as specific as you just were in terms of keeping the CBD products in their lane. They basically stated that there was only one CBD product that was uh, legal in their view, and that is the PDLX which went through the clinical trials and all of that. And they said that to be fair to that one pharmaceutical company, all others, if they wanted to sell outside of the states in which CBD itself is legalized, which is, as you know, in most states, none of them identified CBD uh, as an exempted material like they exempted THC, because at the time, most of those state laws were formed, it hadn't been issued its own code in Schedule 1 at that point. And it was cannabidiol that actually they identified as the one cannabinoid that was issued its own code in Schedule 1. Does that make sense? So people are confused about that because they didn't say specifically that it's in that lane. They're giving it like a blanket, all CBD products must go through the same requirements as Epidiolex did. So I, I, I'm not sure I understood the reference to state laws and the timing of state laws um, as it relates to THC or CBD. Um, I'm not sure that, that we necessarily need to go there. Um, right. I'll, I'll kind of respond to the other component uh, as to CBD and the timing of Epidiolex, et cetera. Um, the FDA is taking the position that based upon uh, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, or otherwise known as DSHEA, that uh, because GW Pharmaceuticals started exploring um, CBD isolate uh, as early as 2005 for its Sativex application, um, or otherwise in 2011 or 2012 for its Epidiolex application, uh, that because no other products predated that, um, you cannot market a CBD product as a supplement. Okay. And, uh, you know, that point is well taken. Uh, I think the FDA's position on that is premature. I only think, I, I believe that it's based upon only a, a portion of evidence available um, in terms of, you know, what evidence uh, is out there as to whether um, GW got to CBD isolate first or whether uh, the hemp industry did. That's a factual determination, and I don't think the – while the FDA is certainly, you know, putting its position out there in this Q&A, it is just that. It's a Q&A. It's not a final – what we, as, you know, uh, as lawyers would call a final agency action. Um, your point is well taken that, you know, they discuss primarily that there's only one lawful product in the FDA's eyes as of today. Again, that's the, that, that's the same position that the FDA has taken for five years. But elsewhere in that statement from FDA, they acknowledge other pathways forward. And based upon both that statement, you know, being made public, but also, you know, other conversations, discussions, um, and, and, you know, other various uh, pieces of information, uh, you know, we feel fairly confident that the FDA is evaluating this, not just from a pharmaceutical perspective, but from a supplement one uh, as well. Um, you know, we're, we're well aware that the FDA has been touring hemp facilities uh, as part of wrapping their 
heads around this issue and 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 how to uh, regulate these products. I think there's a, a number of practical reasons. You're right. That statement did not spell out those swim lanes. I wouldn't have have expected it to. That was literally within 48 hours of the farm bill passing, uh, right? Which uh, you know a lot took to you know uh, mean a, a great step forward and great momentum for the hemp industry. Um, the point is, is the FDA is a slow-moving federal bureaucratic agency. It's going to take them time. But I do take their rhetoric as hinting at or indicating that there are pathways forward as to those swim lanes and creating mutually distinct supplement and pharmaceutical swim lanes uh, over the course of time. But it will take time. As of right now, I would expect no, uh, nothing less than the FDA to continue its rhetoric that it's had for the past five years of they will maintain their position that CBD is otherwise not a permissible ingredient unless in an approved drug form. Um, that said, uh, I, again, I wouldn't expect them to take any different position, but also, again, looking at their enforcement priorities and their enforcement authority to date, uh, it certainly expresses vulnerability from the FDA that they are not particularly enforcing uh, that uh, issue with any particular uh, uh, sense of urgency or credibility. Instead, they're focusing their, they're exercising their authority um, on those who are marketing hemp-derived cannabinoid products as treating cancer and treating pain and epilepsy. No other supplement could make those product, uh, make those types of claims either. You can't uh, market a calcium or vitamin C product for treating epilepsy or cancer or pain, nor should you be able to market a supplement that contains a hemp derivative. Um, that's just a, a, a functional part of distinguishing pharmaceutical products from supplement products, irrespective of the fact that we're talking about hemp uh, today. So again, my, my ultimate point is that I'm encouraged by that rhetoric from the FDA and just based upon our experience and, and um, uh, uh, you know, our work, we firmly and confidently believe that the FDA will be taking this up in a constructive way, that not all products will be pharmaceutical uh, based, but it will take time. Uh, if you look at other precedent uh, for vape products, for example, vapes first hit the market probably 20 years ago. The FDA only issued final regulations in late 2016. So what happened for, what, 15 years, give or take, with respect to vape products that were being openly marketed? There was a form of quasi-regulation as the industry and as the FDA figured it out. I'm not saying that's an exact analogy here, but it should give an indication that the FDA is a slow-moving agency, but we will get it figured out. Uh, when the FDA is tasked with caring about things like Kratom or the opioid crisis or things like that, those are far more serious from a consumer safety perspective uh, rather than simply fit, figuring out where hemp-derived cannabinoids fit within the FDA's regulatory scheme. Okay, so that helps quite a bit. And... The bottom line then is that as long as companies are not making any extraordinary health claims about any disease-specific treatment of their products, they're basically at liberty to carry on the way that they have for the last 10 years. Am I hearing that correctly? In many respects, I mean, that's an oversimplified, uh, I, I think I'm talking about this at a very high level such that, such that I probably oversimplified it. But yes, in, in general, uh, uh, terms, uh, yes, that, that's part of the prerogative. Um, there are, of course, nuanced considerations. Are you selling into all 50 states or only some states? Uh, th there's a number of different considerations at play there, but generally speaking, yes. Okay, so then back to something you said earlier about the these states and what I just so that I clarify so you understand what I was talking about when the FDA in that particular memo and for people listening, I'll, I'll post that memo uh, online so that you can actually see what we're talking about. But in that memo, they basically were saying that CBD products are legal as long as they're produced and sold in the same states where, where CBD has been identified as an exempt substance. And I'm paraphrasing, so maybe that's why... Uh, you were not thinking that I was referring to that exact memo, but there was something in there that said essentially that, that it, it was legal to sell in those states as long as it was produced in those states and didn't cross state lines for commerce. I can't speak to that because I'm not the FDA and I didn't write that memo, but I, I read the memo from the FDA a little bit differently. Um, I don't believe that a state lawful medical marijuana program 
or a state lawful CBD only program. And when I say CBD only, I mean CBD for purposes of treatment of, of certain conditions with a prescription, basically a watered down medical marijuana program in a conservative state that can't yet pass a, a marijuana law. I don't believe that any of those sort of state lawful programs has any bearing on the FDA's decision whatsoever. Um, that I, I think that's entirely uh, uh, besides the point. The FDA, they are citing the, the Deshaies Act and saying, have supplements been marketed not under state law, but under federal law uh, lawfully prior to GW Pharmaceuticals applications. And so basically the point being is the FDA is taking the position. Again, I think it's a premature position. I think it's a flawed position, but they're taking the position that no one marketed uh, hemp derived cannabinoid products prior to either 2005 or six or 2011 or 12. Um, not, not with respect to state laws, um, more so with respect to existing federal hemp law, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And so here's a question then that someone in, let's say Idaho, for example, can someone in Idaho go online and purchase a CBD product and have it delivered to their home without breaking the law? I mean... I would argue yes, and obviously, you know, we're treading on on, on the territory of uh, advising someone legally, and so of course, I want to be thoughtful about not uh, inducing someone uh, uh, to rely upon that legal advice, if you will. I would advocate that yes, it's lawful uh, under existing federal law, including the new Farm Bill, which specifically says that no authority, including states or tribes, can interfere with the. Um, uh, uh, the interstate transport or commerce of hemp or hemp products. However, what that provision from the new Farm Bill does not necessarily reflect or resolve is this uh, uh, FDA issue that we've been talking about here for the past several minutes uh, or any state law. Using Idaho as an example, Idaho has not yet, yet passed state-level legislation concerning hemp. They may well do so this year, but they've not done so yet. So while I would argue that the new farm bill uh, doesn't require Idaho to do so, and if Idaho does not pass hemp, uh, a state hemp law, then federal law would govern, meaning it would be lawful, there's still plenty of confusion. There's a learning curve. We're just a, a, a matter of weeks into this new farm bill era. And so it's not particularly fair to expect regulators, um, law enforcement officials, the industry to fully understand um, the federal farm bill and, and the extent of its provisions, especially when, you know, the government's been uh, shut down for, for several weeks of that, uh, of the time since the farm bill was passed anyways. Um, so the point is, is while I would ar advocate, yes, there, there are areas uh, um, of confusion still left uh, to be resolved primarily at the, uh, under state law and pursuant to the FDA. Um, and those issues will be resolved, but it's going to take some time for that to all play out. So there's still plenty of considerations that in large part, I, I suspect people will be able to, to fairly freely buy products, but you can't do so necessarily flippantly. Um, there needs to be an understanding of, of what the laws are in, you know, the, the places that you live or, or, you know, are working or, or possessing these products. Right. And then I want to go back to one other thing that you were talking about and that is the, in the main provision, the hemp provision of the farm bill, it did identify all of the derivatives of the hemp plant. And then in section 12608, if I'm remembering correctly, they actually had an amendment built into that bill that amended the, the Controlled Substances Act to exempt specifically THC from Schedule 1. But what they failed to do in that bill is also exempt other cannabinoids such as CBD. So something going back to that FDA memo, which has been a, a bone of contention and something I've been obsessed with ever since it came out, because I, I drill into these little details, I catch on to them, I say, well, what about this? And so I'm going to ask you, what about that? What do you make of the fact that the Farm Bill actually did not exempt CBD, which has its own code in Schedule 1, while it exempted the THC traces that are found in the hemp plant. Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting point that you make, 
um, and, and I'll try to, to clean some of that up because I think it's important to understand where those areas of law come from. So under the, the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, as enacted you know, nearly 50 years ago, the only two uh, substances referenced related to marijuana are uh, marijuana as it's defined under federal law, which is the flowers, leaves, uh, resins, and viable seeds of the cannabis plant, um, as well as then THC is separately scheduled. So a few things there. One, uh, marijuana never included non-psychoactive hemp as the court from 15 years ago determined. And that reference to THC also has been interpreted to mean only synthetic THC. Um, so the, what the Farm Bill did was it carved out hemp as defined under the Farm Bill from treatment as either marijuana uh, or um, that the THC found naturally occurring within hemp, which again would be limited at 0.3% anyways, uh, that that too is exempted from treatment as a uh, controlled substance under uh, the Controlled Substances Act. So those are, are two points of clarity and, and confirmation from Congress that hemp is not to be treated as a controlled substance. What you are also referencing is the newly added uh, reference to CBD um, in Schedule 5. And so just to make clear, there are no other cannabinoids that are listed in the controlled substances schedules. Only THC was in Schedule 1, and then as of just a few months ago, um, there's this vague reference, I'll clarify that in a moment, but vague reference to CBD in Schedule 5. The reference to CBD in Schedule 5 does not pertain to all CBD. Uh, the, the reference there was created as a function of Epidiolex by GW Pharma because GW Pharma's product contains a CBD isolate. But the operative point here is that that CBD isolate is derived from marijuana, not from some other source such as hemp. So when you see CBD noted or listed in Schedule 5, I uh, was not consulted in, in how to appropriately reflect that language in Schedule 5. But if I had my druthers, I think that the appropriate re uh, reference in Schedule 5 would have more closely tied the definition to its derivation from marijuana. Because the fact that it's CBD is not why it's in Schedule 5. That has no bearing on it whatsoever. CBD is not itself scheduled. It's the fact that it is derived from marijuana that GW Pharma grows in another country and imports uh, is, is what makes that Schedule 5. Uh, marijuana and THC are scheduled in the psychotropic uh, subclassification under, the, under Schedule 1. Uh, CBD itself has no psychotropic effect. So it's not, uh, CBD itself is not contemplated as part of that scheduling action. Uh, it's marijuana and THC. And so then again, CBD in Schedule 5 is only in Schedule 5 by virtue of it being derived from marijuana in that instance. So I don't necessarily think that Congress needed to do anything with respect to that Schedule 5 listing in the new Farm Bill because it's, you know, besides the, the, the point of hemp. Okay, so I hear what you're saying. I want to go back to, let's see, it's the December... 2016, which was enacted in January of 2017, it happened during the presidential transition period, when the DEA sent out in the Federal Registry a notice that CBD was being issued its own code within Schedule 1. And I had a number of interviews with a number of different attorneys and nobody could come to a consensus with the same set of facts because there was so much ambiguity in that and the reasoning behind it as cited by the DEA was to just clarify that CBD is separate from marijuana. However, it got its own code, which still to this day resides in Schedule 1, which is what the FDA was referring to in their memo. So unless something changed and I'm just not aware of it, it's still a point of confusion for a lot of people. And when you're saying that, that the Epidiolex, you know, there was an action to list the CBD isolate that was in their particular drug into Schedule 5, did that automatically remove that classification from Schedule 1 that where CBD received its own numerical code separate from marijuana in Schedule 1? So a, a few things. Um, that, that I think we need to clarify. Um, 
One, I'm not aware of the in that statement from uh, the FDA recently of specifically referencing the DEA's notice uh, from 2016. I don't believe that that, that is specifically referenced. Um, second, with respect to the DEA's um, issuance in December 2016, that is the final rule case, the lawsuit that myself and two colleagues uh, represent hemp industry stakeholders in that I referenced earlier in our conversation. That drug code uh, that was created by DEA does not, uh, it is not as to CBD. It is as to quote unquote marijuana extract. Um, and, and that's an important distinction. It's not, they did not sit there and say, CBD is now assigned this drug code. The definition of marijuana extract that the DEA created uh, was any extract containing one or more cannabinoids from the genus cannabis. Your point would be well taken that, well, isn't CBD one of those uh, cannabinoids from the genus cannabis? And, and yes, the answer is yes. And that's precisely why we brought the lawsuit is because the, the DEA unilaterally created this definition, not because Congress told it to, not because anyone else told it to, but because DEA thought it should in its own power. And in all transparency, I think that that was DEA exceeding its authority because that definition is not narrowly tailored to what's a controlled substance. The genus cannabis is not a controlled substance. Marijuana, as defined under federal law, which is only a certain portion of the genus cannabis, is a controlled substance. Cannabinoids, as we've been discussing in the past several, several months, those are not controlled substances either. Uh, and so for the DEA to determine that a substance is controlled by virtue of the presence of cannabinoids, any cannabinoid, not just THC, um, or the fact that it's from the genus cannabis, irrespective of the fa fact that the genus cannabis is not a controlled substance, that exceeds the DEA's authority. They don't have control over some of those uh, uh, portions of the plant, uh, of the cannabis plant, or some cannabinoids. And so those were the points of contention that we brought in the court case. Um, and while I, you know, I, I'd be remiss to say that I, I uh, uh, you know, wish that the court had, you know, taken all these issues into consideration and we had taken the trial to verdict, when the court dismissed the case, uh, they clearly said that where the farm bill applies, uh, the DEA has no authority. And because the Farm Bill contemplates hemp-derived cannabinoids, the DEA has no authority. And furthermore, the DEA said as much in its own sworn testimony that cannabinoids themselves are not scheduled substances and that uh, um, where the Farm Bill applies that it has no authority. And then on top of all that, you have a, a bipartisan coalition of, of, of Congress uh, coming forward to the court and advising the court that Congress intended for the 2014 Farm Bill, and then now, you know, presumably, presumably the 2018 Farm Bill uh, to provide for the lawfulness of hemp as well as hemp-derived uh, cannabinoids. So I, I think your points are well taken that you know there are are many inferences to be drawn and/or you know uh, points that are susceptible to confusion. Um, but you know, in, in our heads and based upon our practice, uh, it, it's fairly clear. Uh, you know, hemp-derived cannabinoids have been clearly lawful since 2014, and only that much more clearly lawful uh, since uh, the 2018 Farm Bill was passed just a bit uh, just a bit ago. Again, if you you know you you reference the 2016 issuance, that does not pertain to CBD specifically. It pertains to marijuana extract. Uh, yes, there were agencies that thought that meant hemp-derived cannabinoids, uh, and that was precisely why we we the DEA and we were able to get a court to agree with us that if this is a farm bill derived, you know, farm bill hemp derived cannabinoid, that has no bearing on the DEA's authority. The DEA has no authority over that product. Right. If the case that you worked on actually reversed that DEA federal registry announcement in there, then this is great news. So just to clarify, it didn't reverse it. The court said that the the DEA registry may remain, but that the DEA's registry only pertains to controlled substances, which is marijuana and THC, not the farm bill. So again, the point is, is that the farm bill is protected from that registry. Right. Okay. Okay. There were some Q&As in that. I'm looking at the registry right now, that notice. And 
for practical purposes, all extracts that contain CBD will also contain at least small amounts of other cannabinoids. I, I wouldn't get lost in the weeds of the registry announcement. I mean, your point is well taken that it's confusing uh, and could arguably remain confusing. But the point is, is that the, you know, the DEA is not out there on its own to necessarily address that confusion. That confusion right. was by the court where the court said, DEA, you have authority over marijuana and THC, but not anything outside of that, including the farm bill. Okay, that's really great news, actually. So, all right. Well, you know what? You have really helped me to clarify that because, you know, like I said, it's been just a, uh, it's been a thorn in a lot of people's sides, not knowing exactly where the law stands. And I mean, if there's anybody on the planet who would know and understand this, it's you. <laughs> so I thank you for that. Um, there was an incident. Um, there was well, an incident. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, you're certainly welcome. And, you know, there was one other um, episode that happened a few weeks ago. A friend of mine called me and said, you won't believe what happened, but there was a retail shop here in Arizona that was raided by the FDA and they brought along officers from the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. And they they went into this shop and they confiscated chocolate bars and gummy bears and all sorts of things that had hemp-derived CBD food substances. And the explanation that was given to them on site by the officer from the FDA who was there said that specifically they did not label on these packages that the CBD was not intended for human consumption. And that was the that was the direct quote. And as you can imagine, that set off some real alarm bells because this happened literally within a week of of that FDA announcement. So was there something that you noticed that would have to specify that CBD is not, you know, intended for human consumption. Why on earth would they say that? And when you looked at the actual labels, there was no claim of any disease uh, therapy or anything like that. It was weird. So, uh, you know, with respect to that, that um, you know, instance and scenario in Arizona, I'm generally aware uh, of what occurred and certainly the news reports uh, of what occurred. Um, I can't speak, you know, in intimate detail uh, uh, on all those issues outside of, you know, hearsay and, and what's been reported. Uh, that said, uh, I, you know, would want to get more facts about uh, what precisely happened. Oftentimes when, uh, you know, instances of enforcement like this occur, there are other factors that are aggravating the situation. Um, I, you know, it, it would be shocking indeed to me for the FDA uh, first of all, I, I rarely see the FDA working in tandem with agencies like ATF um, on, you know, raids and, and things of that nature. Uh, but furthermore, the FDA, is, you know, here in Colorado uh, is rather friendly and is, in fact, touring facilities that are making hemp products. So I guess my point is, is I, I can't speak definitively without knowing more information on that issue, but I, I don't think it would be fair to assume uh, that that interaction is representative of the FDA's um, uh, attitude towards hemp products in general, and that I would suspect that there, you know, was something else uh, as part of that investigation that caused uh, concern, um, you know, for whichever agencies were present um, uh, at, you know, uh, during that investigation. Um, as I can say, on, on the whole, I, I generally find FDA to to not act in that manner whatsoever. Uh, so I, I would either suggest that that was an isolated occurrence or that there there's something else that, um, you know, perhaps we don't know about. Yeah, no doubt. There must have been something else, but it we definitely sent out a chill in the industry. So are you a part of the Supreme Court case that um, I think Marvin Washington and they're suing for the right for people to carry their medicines, medicinal marijuana, when they travel. Are you part of that at all, or is that something that's not really in your purview? We, we are not a party to that case. Um, I, I know uh, that Marvin Washington had been involved in a court case that I believe uh, had been dismissed by a New York uh, judge last year. 
um, and, and trying to compel then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to uh, amend the rules with respect to um, you know marijuana federally uh, and, and to amend the um, Controlled Substances Act. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case that you're speaking about. Yeah, that that is the case that I'm speaking about. And I was just curious if you had any updates to that, aside from the fact that it was dismissed, because it seems to me that they were going to revisit it or take it back down to a lower court or something like that. I'm not sure. They may well have been uh, appealing the dismissal. Um, I can't really speak with intimate knowledge as to the status of those appeals. Um, at this time, at, you know, the outside of the, you know, the the factor of policy and you know, is the regulation of marijuana as an illegal substance good policy? Outside of that, you know, part uh, which I think many in the in the cannabis industry would be supportive of. If you look at the procedural arguments being made, um, you know, they they were generally speaking uh, somewhat long shot arguments and trying to basically say that the federal government. Uh, had abused its discretion in ever scheduling uh, cannabis or, or rather marijuana. Um, and while again, you know, many in the audience may say, "Hey, like it, it never should have been scheduled." Uh, uh, you know, why would the federal government ever do this? Um, you know, the the point is, there's a specific procedure that has to be followed. And so, um, in terms of where that, uh, you know, how that court case came to be and where it's going, I'm not sure that that's the most effective way uh, way to affect real change here. Ultimately. I think that court case uh, in, in many respects was to uh, bolster the conversation about real policy reform and the need to, to change cannabis policy under US federal law, uh, but also likely with the recognition that that court case itself uh, was not going to achieve that result, but may well be a martyr in you know, pushing the conversation forward and compelling the federal government to act now, as opposed to the court case saying, you know, 40 years ago or, or whatnot, uh, marijuana should have never been put uh, uh, in the Controlled Substances Act. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have any other advice that you think that people need to know? Is anything that we haven't really talked about here? If they're in the CBD industry, what are some of the cautionary tales? What would you, what would you tell producers in order to avoid any, any conflicts with the DEA? and the FDA. So, I mean, with respect to, you know, compliance on the hemp side, uh, you know, th there's a number of compliance measures that could be taken to ensure that, you know, your products are uh, as in conformance as possible. You know, it comes down to, are you using good manufacturing practices? Um, you know, do you know uh, what's in the hemp? You know, uh, when people are surprised to find pesticides or heavy metals were used uh, or, or absorbed by the hemp, um, in the, you know, the plot of land where it was grown, you know, things like testing protocols and making sure that you have certificates of analysis, uh, using um, a chain of custody procedures to ensure that there's no tampering with material, um, you know, once it's bagged uh, post-harvest. Um, uh, there, there's a number of different compliance best practices, if you will. Yes, there are some uncertainties with the FDA, but if you're labeling products in accordance with certain FDA labeling regulations and you're otherwise following FDA best practices uh, and you're avoiding making disease claims and you're you know, being thoughtful about whether your product is using a, you know, whether you're calling a product a full spectrum hemp extract or a CBD product, you know, being thoughtful about your nomenclature. You know, one that kind of drives me a little bit nuts sometimes is full spectrum CBD. Uh, CBD means a singular cannabinoid, uh, whereas full spectrum means the whole profile of cannabinoids, right? So that's an inherently contradictory phrase. Um, and so being thoughtful about how you're representing your nomenclature in the marketing of your products and in your website copy, um, et cetera. Uh, a lot of people don't realize too that in making disease claims, it's not just what's on your label, but it's on what's in your marketing copy. It's what's on uh, your website. If you link to a Harvard study that says CBD is the miracle cure of all cancers, uh, that link to that Harvard study uh, is still a violation of FDA regulation. So there's a lot of different compliant, uh, of, of compliance issues that you can you know, address and mitigate your risk um, by using best practices and making sure that you're sourcing lawfully and compliantly. That's a really interesting point that you make because I, I know that a lot of people do point outside of their website to studies that suggest 
you know, curative impact of cannabinoids. And I didn't realize that that itself would be a violation of the law to point to those studies or to link to those outside studies. And what about media reports? And, you know, obviously being a media outlet is something that would concern me if if I'm publishing studies that find specific disease therapeutic effects of CBD or other cannabinoids. And let's say if I have an interview with someone and on my site or somewhere in my article, and I'm, you know, obviously as a journalist, I have First Amendment rights to write about things that I learn. And let's say that person shares out an interview where on my site I have a claim about CBD in a study that I've published that was at Harvard or somewhere else. Is that going to be a violation or will they be acting within the law to go ahead and share something that a journalist has said? Well, no, the reality is no, because your, you know, your First Amendment rights as a journalist are mutually distinct from the rights of a manufacturer of a product who has a profit motive, who is trying to induce consumers to buy their product and using your content to do so. Right. So, yes, you can put together all the content you want. You're a journalist. You're supposed to report the news and educate folks about various issues that are that are newsworthy. That's you know, that's certainly within your, your First Amendment right. Um, that doesn't you know, you are not implicated by this FDA regulation. But when a product manufacturer who, again, has a profit motive, uh, the FDA, their prerogative is to protect vulnerable consumers. So. If a manufacturer with a profit motive um, is, you know, basically trying to educate consumers that because Snowden says uh, that this treats cancer, you should buy my product, that's precisely what the FDA is trying to prohibit. Um, so the point is segregating or bifurcating education from sales. And because you as a reporter are only engaging in one of those things, education, you're good. But when a sales company is trying to then commingle with education, that's when it becomes problematic. Now, what if a company sponsors the show or sponsors an ad on the website that is educating the public? Are they in violation? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, I mean, you could we could probably go around with iterations for days in terms of where this goes. I mean, at the end of the day, I think. Uh, the ultimate answer is the context always matters. Uh, but simply having an ad somewhere doesn't necessarily um, uh, uh, implicate a violation of FDA regulations. Okay, that's a relief. <laughs> that's definitely a relief because, you know, obviously in, in media related to this topic, you need people to support the education and advertise. And if their brand is a big banner ad somewhere on a site that's publishing that same uh, Harvard University study about the curative effects of cannabis, there are so many gray areas when you're operating in an industry that by nature it's been prohibited on a federal level. And I, I can't think of any other industry that's had to jump through so many hoops or overcome so many regulatory barriers as an emerging industry and it just seems like such a miracle that this industry has managed to thrive the way it is given all of these obstacles so it's good to hear straight from you <laughs> what some of these pitfalls could be so I really appreciate that thank you well no worries at all I mean like I said that the you know that's what we're here for we we work with a lot of folks in in rooting out these issues and you know, figuring out the, the, the best balance for them moving forward with their companies and, uh, you know, whatever portion of the industry they may be. But you're right that, you know, there is plenty of gray area at times. Um, and the FDA is a bureaucratic agency. It does not have the resources to sit there and, um, you know, police every single instance of an issue. So, uh, you know, there is always a balance there. But, you know, of course, it, it's incumbent upon us to make sure we get good information out there for everyone um, you know, to consider and, and make sure that we're pushing this forward the right way. Yeah. Well, Garrett, I really appreciate your insights on this. And, you know, thank you for bearing with me as I drilled down into some of these detailed questions that have just been bothering me for so long. I, um, I can't tell you how much it helps. So thank you so much. 
Well, no worries. It was great to join you, Snowden. I appreciate you having me. Anytime. Seriously, anytime. And I'd love to have you back on the show at some point in the near future. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I'd like to personally thank my guest, Garrett Graff, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing at Hoban Law Group, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and that's where you will find his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio partners, Sunstate Technology, Canisphere Biotech, and Integrated Compliance Solutions for supporting our show. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine, and our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.